Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the industry to discuss the most pressing issues of the day. I'm David Thorpe, reporter at FT Advisor. Joining me today are Simon Edelston, Global Equity Fund Manager at Artemis, and Wayne Berry, Investment Manager at Bruin Dolphin, to discuss the outlook for global equities in the year to come. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining. Morning. Morning. 2019 has been a bit of a roller coaster for equity investors, beginning strongly as investor sentiment recovered after a torrid end to 2018. Worries about the health of the global economy sent markets into a spiral. But as the year winds to a close, the headlines are once again filled with tales of markets hitting new highs and where once there was despair, hope again rules the day. Wayne, over the past quarter, there has been a stark shift in market sentiment where some of the traditional value sectors have started to outperform the more typical growth stocks. What do you think is behind this and do you expect it to continue? There are many reasons behind why the value trade is quite attractive at the moment, but I think the main reason is that value stocks were just too cheap. Pessimism was running rampant towards Q4 2018 and is and since the end of July was also quite prevalent. So seeing a lot of these traditional value stocks still profitable, still growing earnings and so on, they were just too cheap trading on single digit PEs and quite large dividend yields as well. That's probably the, the main reason. Thank you. Simon, I know that you're, as a manager, you have been quite sceptical of the investment case for some of those staples and big tech names that did well in the in the, in the the growth-fueled period. But what, what do you think has prompted the change? I'd agree with everything said so far, really. The, the bull market, which started back in 2009, was very much led up by growth stocks, such as the American internet stocks. But it was also recently led up by uh, some stable companies of high quality, companies like Nestle, companies is like Unilever, Diageo, which don't grow all that quickly. They grow nothing like as fast as the tech companies. But they did offer stability, which is particularly attractive when economies are slowing. The background last year really was the world economy was slowing. Even the American economy after a stonking year in 2018 uh, was always going to slow this year. Uh, That also led bond yields to fall further and further. Bond yields tend to go down when there's not much economic activity because there's not much risk of inflation. But as you say, you've got a different tone coming in for next year, where because people are now quite pessimistic about growth, the chances are the next year might actually be a little bit better. As you're alluding to, the growth type names tend to perform better when bond yields are low and interest rate expectations are very muted. Mm-hmm. And the sell-off that we had in the final month or so of 2018 was apparently as a result of the market expecting US rates to continue to rise, which should help those value names and not the growth names. But fast forward a year, we're now in a position where US rates are not going up, where inflation expectations are still quite muted. Those are precisely the conditions, Simon, where the growthy staple type names should do well because bond yields and interest rates are not rising. And yet, despite having those conditions, the more growthy names are not performing well and the more value names, and many of the value names are in areas such as banks where the expectation is that they need higher interest rates. So we've had this flip around despite the market conditions not being that much different to what they were two, three years ago when growth was doing well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about timing and, and about valuation. It is about the detail of the industry. So certainly at the beginning of this year in my fund, we owned quite a lot of um, Nestle. Um, rather expecting the market to struggle, frankly. I thought it would hold up in a falling market. Uh, I didn't think it was particularly cheap. The management was doing a, a pretty good job. They were managing to get the top line to grow in the high 3% region rather than the low 3% region. But this is a, a massive and very, um, and very saturated business. It is not a business that can grow its top line very much. So yes, coming up to the end of the summer, I was rather shocked and amazed that the shares had gone up by about 35%, 40% and had gone from looking quite expensive to blindingly expensive, really. And and so we've sold them, we've moved on. That has proved to be a good decision in this, uh, as you say, growth value switch. It's stocks like that which have, have been hit and it's stocks on much, much lower ratings which have held up a little bit better including recently some of the banks, not just in America, but, but in, in the UK even, um, have had slightly better time recently, which are on tiny ratings, having been loathed for a decade for quite good reasons. But of course, banks will tend to do a bit better when economies are doing better, fewer bad debts, a bit more lending. Uh, so some of those cyclical, very cheap stocks have a better chance of, of giving a return for a while. But there is a difference in quality here. And for investors who'd like to buy something and hold it for 25 years, they may well feel comfortable staying in a stock like Diageo, despite it being pricey in our view, rather than trusting their their savings to a bank of whatever price. Thank you. Wayne, looking at those downward moves in interest rates, inflation expectations still being quite muted, certainly outside the UK. As an investment manager, how do you respond or react to those um, market conditions? Generally, I, I because I look after clients on behalf of advisors, so a lot of portfolios are bespoke. That said, as has already been alluded to, cyclicals perform better when interest rates are rising, and you've got to look at why traditionally interest rates would rise. They would rise because economies are growing strongly. Uh, there is a lot of confidence there. And generally for cyclicals, that means that their earnings visibility is much better, especially with quality value names that uh, that produce good dividend yields. So we've benefited from that generally. But that said, we're not in that situation. Uh, they've they have had a bounce recently, and I do think because of those longer term fundamentals, certainly in the medium term, when we're not expecting interest rates to rise, this is pretty much driven by the fact that they are just too cheap. I don't see this lasting into the next few years. I think that could remain muted for quite a bit longer on the value side. So I do think growth offers a bit more opportunity, especially the relative underperformance. And that's the beauty of markets. It's not necessarily good news versus bad news. It's is it better or is it worse than anticipated? That's what moves a market, not good versus bad. Thank you. So as Simon was alluding to, some of those staple type names such as Nestle or, or Unilever have had perhaps some underperformance in, in share price terms. Does, and that's just making them potentially more attractive in, in your view? I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Simon, do you think that those growth type names are, are starting to, to look attractive again, given the share price falls? You had your Nestle at the start of the year. They've gone into reverse. Is it time to wade back in? Timing is always the really tricky thing. Uh, I don't think it is. I think that there are better things to do out there and there are parts of the world stock market which uh, are much more overlooked, I think, than either the staples, which are very heavily loved at the moment. I'm afraid I've been around um, so long that I remember Unilever being one of the cheapest stocks in the stock market back in sort of 98, 99, when it was regarded as too dull for words and never going to grow as fast as a tech stock. And 
traded on a multiple of earnings about a, a third of this, possibly a quarter of this. So, you know, everything has its day. When I want to go back to growth, what I'm really looking at at the moment, which has also been sold down, are some of the uh, companies with really good top-line growth. We continue to live in a world where technological developments are running very, very fast, where new technologies come through to profitability pretty fast. A whole new wave of mobile phone technologies coming through, a load of artificial intelligence coming through. So in the part of my portfolio which I give over to growth, I'd stick to companies which got top-line growth in the mid-double digits. I'm not interested in fiddling around whether Unilever or Nestle is going to grow at 3 or 4%. There are still plenty of stocks, mainly in America, I'm afraid, growing their top lines 15 20% next year and the year after. A lot of these also less well-known names. You have to go down into the mid-cap area. Uh, some of them, one of my biggest holdings is a, is a semiconductor chip design company. I mean, this is fairly technical stuff, but if you all of artificial intelligence needs new semiconductors, all those chips need to be designed. Um, this company's gone up 40, 50% this year and it'll grow its top line by 30% next year. That's what I call growth. The balancing thing in the portfolio, and I think this is the sensible way to balance a portfolio, is then to have some of these more deep value stocks around. And if you want quality defensive earnings, you don't have to be in the staples to get it. Earlier this year, we bought some Vodafone uh, after they cut the dividend. Where would you place Vodafone on these sort of spectrums we're talking about? You know, Do people view mobile phones as basically a utility now, which would place it out there and if not quite a Nestle, but closer to a Nestle than a tech company? Yeah, but not on the same rating. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, Vodafone hasn't really grown for about 20 years, uh, mainly because of regulations have got the prices down. So everyone now has a lot more mobile phone for a similar price to what they're paying 20 years ago. Uh, the handset price has gone up, but the, the amount taken by Vodafone hasn't really. Uh, there are signs of that improving because people need more bandwidth for all the f- fun things that they do on their phones. And so Vodafone can charge for that. But yes, after that dividend cut, and the shares got down to about 130, 132 back in late spring, uh, the shares were yielding 6.5% even on the cut dividend um, and on a, on a fraction of the rating of uh, Unilever and Nestle. So really... Um, Worse than a utility valuation, I'd say. I mean, people had rather given up on it, I thought. Okay, thank you. Uh, Wayne, any flows data that we that we see shows investors continue to, to favour US equities. As I alluded to in my introduction, we've had news this week that the US markets have hit new highs. Share buybacks have certainly played a role in the US markets. They generally boost share prices regardless in some cases of underlying earnings for the clients that you deal with is us exposure still something that they they want almost uh, at the expense of all others i wouldn't say at the expense of all others but it is and it's the largest economy in the world you can't have zero exposure to it i think everyone wants some exposure to us equities do they generally want to be overweight at the minute yes but that is more to do with their UK-based and the UK political situation, they would rather have more exposure to overseas. We do get that via our UK exposure anyway, but generally we are really quite comfortable retaining our overweight exposure to the US at the expense of the likes of Europe and Asia. Um, Less so Japan. Uh, I think we're still reasonably confident on Japan, but the US is definitely the, the, the beacon of hope relative to certainly the UK right now. 
Thank you. And it's the allocations to the US, do they vary across client with higher risk, lower risk clients or income growth clients? Where does it fit in? How do you view it, its role within a portfolio? It is the second largest individual equity exposure after the UK. There is, there is often a home bias when you, you we look after a private client portfolio for, for advisors. So it is the second largest and generally a moderate to lower risk would have anywhere between 12 and 15% in US ranging right up to 30% or more for more risky portfolios. Thank you. And I mean, is it possible to make an income portfolio from US stocks? It is, but it depends on what income expectations you have. And this is one of the main reasons uh, there's no getting around the fact I look after look after a lot of pensioners uh, and pension money. So there is that reason why we have a bit of a UK bias. The UK market is a very high yielding market relative to other global markets and the US especially. You can, but we're talking two and a half to three percent as opposed to four and a half to five that you would get in the UK. But that said, as Simon's already alluded to, Vodafone cutting its dividend and a few years ago BP after um, the Macondo incident cutting their dividend, I would much rather have three percent growing than six percent at risk. So that's what the US offers. Thank you. Simon, you're one or two years from being a pensioner. What's your exposure like to uh, to, to the US? You, you alluded in, in one of your previous answers to, um, to, to liking some parts of the US market. Now you've also discussed how valuation is very important to you. The US is hitting record highs. Where does that circle square? I remember a story from, the, there used to be a building society called the Alliance and Leicester. They got into financial services. I remember the chief executive uh, having a meeting with me and he was talking about advising pensioners on risk. And uh, he had some pensioners coming to see him. And they said they wanted to run a risky portfolio or, or medium risk portfolio. And he said, oh, you can't do that. Regulators won't allow you to do that. And they said, are we allowed to take a bit of risk if, if we bring our parents in to see you as well? I mean, the thing is that people live a hell of a long time. I mean, investing in equities in a balanced way for total returns only makes sense if you take a 10 year plus view I think that's the academic view and you know retirement's hopefully rather more for a, than for a few weeks even for me but getting back to we, we just invest money and I'll always invest money where I think the best value for money is and best growth against the valuation that still leaves us with more than half our money in America um, as I said mainly in mid-caps, mainly in less well-known stocks uh, these days. I think if you went back five years, you could buy most of the blue chips and you would have done very well, uh, particularly the well-known internet names. These days, uh, as you said earlier, I've been one by one, I've been selling them just because the valuations look quite stretched, find much better value in mid-cap area. But you do lose quite a lot of yield, uh, particularly in the growth stocks. They won't pay dividends at all. Uh, so we run a total return fund. We don't particularly have a bias against the UK. We've generally not found very much growth opportunities in the UK, but for the first time in 10 years, I now have more than the global index weighting in the UK, 7 or 8%, because the fear of uh, the UK even before the election was called, did throw some value up. But that's actually a smaller overexposure than the one I have to Japan, where global investors have uh, abandoned Japan because of the worries about the US-China trade war, probably, and, and concerns about the Japanese economy. So we, we find probably the best value for money there, again, in mid-cap areas. Is Japan your largest overweight or the US? 
Oh, no, Japan will be, just because it's quite a small market. And we have about 12% of the fund, I think, in Japan now. I think it's about 7% of the MSCI. So, But it's a market that people seem to have forgotten about. I mean, it, it's a huge, complex market with a lot of... Well, I mean, I mean, the story out there, you know, an investment manager said to me one time, you know, I've only been doing this for 20 years. Of course, I haven't made money from Japan yet, right? There have been lots and lots of false dawns out there. I know. There are some people I've known for a long time who've recently been retiring and uh, I went to somebody's retirement party and said, terribly sorry you never saw a bull market. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it is a sorry tale. But inside the overall economy problems and the problems with the very large cap companies which struggle to change, uh, there are huge numbers of entrepreneurial, medium-sized growth businesses, some fantastic technology. It takes a while to get to know these stocks. But most of the stocks we have in Japan in the portfolio at the moment are in automation. The Japanese are by far the world leader in automation, robotics, and the software and control systems that go with it. And we think uh, on a long-term view, even though the economic cycle is quite old, the level of innovation, things like robot surgeons, robots handling food, which, you know, when they could only build cars before, all this stuff strikes us as a very good long-term story. Does Japan even have an economic cycle? It seems to have been in the same spot for <laughs> 25 years. Strong as stable, I think. <laughs> might have been. Might have been their uh, when you mentioned that many of the clients that you look after are pensioners, many of those were probably working in the, in the heady days of the 80s when Japan was going to conquer the world and Japan led the way in, in all sorts of technology. Does that impact how today's pensioners think of Japan? Do they still think of it in that way as an exciting tech place that they have to have exposure to? Or has have events since then really coloured their perception of Japan? It's actually come full circle. So yes, that was the story in the 80s. They were very, very exciting times for Japan. But then we've had 25 years of deflation and just lurking in the mire. And actually now, and I entirely agree with Simon, all of our exposure in Japan is medium and smaller companies because of that innovation. They are world leaders in so many areas, especially robotics. But equally, the reason we're straying away from the big behemoths that are scarred from those 30 years worth of deflation and negative interest rates and the like, it's still the biggest market in the world for fax machines. You know, Not many people send faxes these days. Quite, yeah. Um, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a technophobe and I can't work a fax machine, but I don't think that's hitting me too hard. The other great stat about Japan is they sell more adult diapers for older people than, than for babies. I mean, that's not very encouraging for growth prospects for the future, right? That's kind of true. Japan, again, talking about false dawns in the land of the rising sun, they are trying to open up a little bit more. They're fully aware that their population is old and it's getting older to the extent they're expecting it to halve in the next 30 years if birth rates don't increase, if they don't get that influx of uh, migration from, from other areas of the world. So there is a political side of this that needs to happen um, and whether Mr Abe is willing to address that is one thing, but that is definitely something. But its necessity is the mother of invention. So the necessity of an elderly population is advances in robotic doctors and so on. So it's both a blessing and a curse. Thank you. Simon, I know you don't run your mandates very specifically with income in mind, but you mentioned earlier that you've increased your, uh, or you saw some opportunities in the, in the UK, given all of the uncertainty in the world. Do you think if the current political uncertainties are resolved in a more market-friendly way, shall we say, that the UK could have quite a significant bounce in, in 2020? 
I think that there's a very good chance that you'll have a short-term bounce, not least, uh, I can imagine, if you're a student with student debt who's, uh, who left college 10 years ago and you haven't thought about buying your first home and you look at the situation around, I think you may well have deferred that decision until either Brexit or an election or both are out of the way. Uh, so you could very well see a sharp stimulus to the economy just by uncertainty going away. Longer term, though, for the domestic economy, there are an awful lot of questions and we won't even be able to start addressing them. Both political parties seem to have very, very large spending plans. This is not always good for an economy. Are you implying that politicians aren't always very good at spending money, Simon? We're getting controversial here on the podcast. You could perfectly well find that UK rates head in a different direction from other countries' rates during this period. Um, I I should also mention, I mean, the American election. You would have thought that it's got a head of steam already, but no. No, we have another year of that and we'll be clear about what happens in America next year. Generally speaking, I mean, the American growth rates are still much, much higher than ours. Um, Britain's also negatively affected by Europe, which I might mention is showing distinctly Japanese characteristics, negative rates, retired population and problems for politicians that politicians will will always find difficult to deal with, uh, not least a different sort of immigration issue, but all the same an immigration issue. It's it's hard to be too positive at an economic level, so it's best just to try to find stocks. Stocks are great at doing their own thing and not worrying about the politics. You, you spend your time with business people, they say, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it be lovely if we knew what was going on politically? But meanwhile, here's my new product. You know, and they just get on and grow their businesses. Thank you, Simon. Wayne, you, you mentioned that a lot of clients that you work with have a distinctly home bias. And they've probably suffered a bit for that yes. in the past uh, couple of years. Do you expect a sentiment shift to help them in 2020? I do. And exactly as Simon said, that this is going to be a relief rally. Whether we get a hard Brexit, a soft Brexit, an al dente Brexit, however you want to describe it, we, we're still not sure what it looks like on the other side, but just that certainty to give people the ability to plan so that they know what it looks like on the other side. We saw this in 2012 with the European sovereign debt crisis. It was very much pricing in the end of the world for Europe. All it had to be was less bad than was anticipated, and that's exactly what we saw. And then obviously Mr Draghi came out doing whatever it would take to save the euro. And I see something similar happening here, albeit not to the extent we've seen since 2012 in Europe. That's great. Thank you both for joining us. And tune in next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.